Okay, guys, grab your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 25. We have got a ton of content to cover. This is a big chapter, uh, pretty big pictures that we need to make sure that we see uh, in this passage. Before we get into Genesis 25, you know, LFBI is getting ready to ramp up. If you are someone who would be trainable in running a live stream for our classes, uh, we can put you to work. Uh, every class has somebody who functions as a video disc jockey, right? You make sure the live stream's working right, and, and what we would do is we would train you in that. The classes that you're serving in um, will cover the cost of enrollment and, and uh, get you trained and make sure you've got everything that you need to, to help us with the class. So if that's something that you'd be interested in helping with, you want to contact Romeo, okay? That's R. Bagunu. I'm not sure how that's spelled. Uh, Romeo Bagunu. Uh, he is, you can catch him at the MBT URL or the LFBI URL. Um, but uh, let's pray. We're going to get into Genesis 25. There's so much here. I want us to have time to, to see it all. Father, we want to hear your word. Uh, we want to hear from you. Lord, we need your help to apply it to our lives. And so, Lord, don't let us get lost in the details that, that are beautiful and the pictures are there. Uh, but we don't, wanna, we don't wanna just get information. Um, Lord, we, we really wanna learn of you. And so God, help us this morning. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So here in Genesis chapter 25, we're gonna see the life, the, the world that Isaac is now living in. And uh, in Genesis 25, verses one through four, we're gonna title this, The Fruit of Abraham. Uh, it continues, verse one. Then again, Abraham took a wife, and her name was Keturah, and she bare him Zamran, and Jokshan, and Medan, and Midian, and Ishbak, and Shua. And Joksan begat Sheba and Dedan, and the sons of Dedan were Ashuram, and Lechuam, and Leumen, Leumem, Leumem, that's a tongue twister for me. And the sons of Midian, Ephah, and Ephah, and Hanok, and Abida, and Eldah, and all these were the children of Keturah. Okay, so what's happening here? You know, his whole life he can't have any kids, right? And uh, they come up with a game plan with Hagar, and then finally the child of pro promise comes, and and now all of a sudden the kids, I mean, they're just kids everywhere. Uh, what's happening here? Get this down in your notes. God continues Abraham's strength. If you'll remember, before, after Ishmael and before Isaac comes, Abraham loses the ability to father a child. Uh, his body was dead in terms of, you know, physical virility. He does, you know, the, the ability to bear a, a child is, is gone. Uh, 13 years before, he was able to father Isaac with Hazar, uh, I'm sorry, Ishmael with Hazar, uh, Hagar, but now he, he can't do it. Okay, so what happened? You know, what happened that would bring Isaac? Isaac is promised by God, but physically he can't father it. What happened? Well, at some point, uh, Abraham got full of faith. He bought some flowers and some chocolates, and he took it home to Sarah, and he just believed God. Uh, he got full of faith and he believed God. Romans 4 verse 19 says, and being not weak in faith, he, Abraham, considered not his own body now dead when he was about 100 years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. Neither one of them physically can procreate, but God's the great physician. 
And uh, he's got, you know, Abraham's position is he's got the, the hookup on the, on the heavenly Viagra, and so it's all gonna work out. Okay, so our go-to passage, Hebrews 11, 11, talks about it from, from Sarah's perspective. Through faith also, Sarah herself received strength to conceive seed and was delivered of a child when she was past age because she judged him faithful who had promised. Therefore sprang there even of one and him as good as dead. That was Abraham's condition. Him as good as dead, so many as the stars of the sky in multitude and as the sand which is by the seashore, uh, the seashore innumerable. Okay, so once the ability to procreate is given to him, it continues, right? This strength continues. When God renews Abraham's ability, right, his sexual vitality for the birth of Isaac, he doesn't later take it away. Okay, so what's the lesson in that insight? Uh, what's the lesson in this discovery? Romans chapter 11 verse 29 tells us that the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. And so what do we have here? Sarah is now dead, she's buried. Abraham takes another wife, Keturah. And what, you know, what's he gonna do? Well remember, we're, on, we're still close, we're still near to a catastrophe. Uh, the, the reset on the human genome was a recent event chronologically, and so what's happening? Everybody's mindset is we gotta repopulate the earth, and so having babies is only a good thing. Everybody's trying to bear children, and so Abraham's perspective is, is well, now that I got the mojo back, it'd be a shame to waste it, and so, you know, let's replenish the earth. Well, okay, that, man, that will preach to our life. You know, when you got saved, when you were born again, the Bible says you became a new creature in Christ. You're sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise and the Holy Spirit gifts you. You get get spiritual gifts from God and those gifts and calling are without repentance. I mean, once God gifts you, he doesn't renege on those gifts. Those should continue and, and the mission's still the same. We need to be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth with sons and daughters of God. So, you know, spiritually, sow the seed of God's word, operate in the gifts that God gives you, and trust that he's gonna use them throughout your life. Uh, let's win some souls and make some disciples. Let's train and equip people for the work. Everything that God's given you, his word, the word of salvation, gifts of the spirit, continue in using them. Okay, now let's look at his wife, Keturah. Uh, she's a wife, but, but there's a stipulation on this. The Bible says she is his concubine. That's your next blank. First Chronicles 1, verses 32 through 34 give you the exact same passage in the book of Chronicles, and it calls her Abraham's concubine. Notice the, 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 the type of wife that she is. Okay, concubines in the Bible and in human biblical history Concubines functioned as like a second class or a second tier, a secondary wife. And as a result, their children did not have inheritance rights. And so the picture is this. Think about what we're seeing so far in the big, you know, that like 50,000 foot overview of Genesis. Uh, finally, the child of promise comes, right? In Genesis, uh, we get Isaac on the scene. And then in Genesis chapter 22, what happens next? Uh, the promised seed, the, promise, the child of promise comes, and then there is a, a death, burial, and resurrection in Genesis 22. We saw that picture. For three days, Isaac is dead to Abraham until God provides himself a sacrifice. And then what happens after 
the death, burial, and resurrection of the child of promise. His mother dies and she's buried with the Gentiles, after which, in Genesis 24, Isaac takes a bride. And we talked about how that's actually how it happens in terms of the Messiah. The child of promise was born. There was a death, burial, and resurrection where Israel rejects her Messiah. After the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, by 70 AD, the temple is sacked. Israel is buried amongst the Gentiles for 2,000 years, for two chapters, right? After, after Genesis 22, after Isaac's death, burial, and resurrection, you don't see him for two chapters until he takes this bride. Is everybody with me in terms of the picture so far? For 2,000 years, nobody sees Christ Right, the spirit is, is going to get a bride for him. That's to be a comfort to the bridegroom. That's what we saw in Genesis 24. Taking a bride is a comfort to Isaac after his mother's death. Now with the Messiah, God's not done with Israel. After 2,000 years, what happens? Well, Christ will take his bride. He will rule and reign with her for 1,000 years on planet Earth. So what do we see next? Well, Genesis 25, we see a picture of the millennial nations. That's what comes next in terms of this biblical picture of the ages in the book of Gentile. So here's Keturah, a Gentile, and she pictures that after Christ takes his bride, after he raptures the church, all the families of the earth are still blessed through Abraham. Abraham's sons from Keturah are connected to the millennial nations. Check out Isaiah 60 and verse six. Isaiah 60 is a millennial kingdom passage and in verse six it says the camels or the multitude of camels shall cover thee, the dromedaries of Midian and Ephah, there it is, Midian and Ephah, all they from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and incense and they shall show forth the praises of the Lord. So Sheba and Dedan, those are principles of Arabia. They're forebears of the, of the Arabian nations. Midian became the father of the Midianites. Uh, by the time you get to Judges and Numbers, you find out they're persecutors of the people, the children of Israel. But that's the picture, right? These principles of these millennial nations that will be blessed during the time of the reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. So don't miss that big over, that preview of the end times, right? The last days that Genesis gives you. All right, let's pick it up in verse five. We are moving right along, aren't we? Remember whenever it took us a couple weeks to get through Genesis 1, 1, and 1, 2? Okay, uh, Abraham loves them all. He gives them gifts. Verse five says, and Abraham gave all that he had unto Isaac, but unto the sons of the concubines, which Abraham had, Abraham gave gifts and sent them away from Isaac, his son, while he yet lived, eastward unto the east country. Um, you guys move into Saudi Arabia, you know, those, those areas, form those nations. And so, you know, in terms of the fortune of Abraham, the bulk is given to Isaac, but he gives gifts to the children. And this is not Abraham rejecting these children. It's Abraham, you know, they would have grown up hearing all of the stories. They would have known that Isaac was the child of promise, that there was something special about this one child in Abraham's home, and that this landmass that they were in was for him to become a mighty nation. So you go be a great nation in another place, right? In other words, this is part of the plan to replenish and repopulate the earth. And so that's what's happening here. Now let's pick it up in verse seven. I want you to see, uh, since we're doing F fruit, 
fortune. This will be the farewell of Abraham. This is him going off the scene. Okay, these are the days of the years of Abraham, right? The years of Abraham's life, which he lived, and hundred, threescore and fifteen years. Then Abraham gave up the ghost and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years. Notice the specific phrasing that chapter 25 is using here. He gives up the ghost, dies in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. And his sons, Isaac and Ishmael, buried him in the cave of Machpelah, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar the Hittite, which is before Mamre. And uh, we saw the story of getting that field in chapter 23. The field which Abraham purchased of the sons of Heth, there was, bur- there was Abraham buried and Sarah his wife. And so notice the phrasing here in, in verse eight. He dies in a good old age, an old man full of years and was gathered to his people. Well this is exactly what was declared over him by the Lord. You know in Genesis chapter 15 and verse six, he believed in the Lord and he, the Lord, counted it to him, Abraham, for righteousness. So in Genesis 15, six, Abraham becomes a man of faith. Well, he dies in faith. In chapter 15, verse 15, God promised him that he would go to his fathers in peace. Thou shalt go to thy fathers in peace. Thou shalt be buried in a good old age. So speaking of his death, this is gonna be critical. Remember the prophecy, Genesis 15, 15. You will, be, you will go to your fathers in peace. This will be critical when we consider how Abraham has gathered to his people in just a second. And shall be buried, and the specific phrasing is in a good old age. So now here in chapter 25, the Bible tells you, just like God said, it was a good old age, right? Why, why is the Bible so careful to point that out? Well, it's because of this. Every word God promises, every word God fulfills. Uh, Take it to the bank. What God says will be, so help him God. So it will be. That's how it works. Now notice this phrase in verse eight. He's gathered to his people. Okay, this is not a reference. A lot of secularists, uh, a lot of Bible scholars are secular in their mentality. And they will, you know, you can read commentaries where they'll say, well, he was, that means he was buried in the cave with Sarah there in Machpelah. Well, that's not what the Bible is saying in Genesis 15, remember we just saw it, you're gonna, you're gonna go to your fathers. Well no, he went, in terms of his body, he went to the cave where Sarah was buried. But God said he would go to his fathers. So we're not talking about a physical burial plot. In this series we've talked at some length about the idea, the fact that Christians can actually exist in two places at the same time, right? Right now physically, we exist together at 40th and Walnut. We are gathered together in physical places at 40th and Walnut. But spiritually, where are we? Well, we're in Christ. Christ is at the right hand of the Father. Spiritually, we're seated together in heavenly places. That's why when the believer dies, 2 Corinthians 5, verse eight, absent from the body is what? Present with the Lord. Physically, where does the believer's, I mean, physically, where is the believer after death? Well, we bury them. We say they're in the grave because that's where they are, they're in the grave. But spiritually, absent from the body is present with the Lord. So what's happening? This is a phrase, he's gathered to his people in verse eight. 
uh, it's talking about him going to his fathers. I mean, of course, Sarah is there. He's part of his people. This is actually a reference to what's called Abraham's bosom. And let me give you some homework. Uh, Read Luke chapter 16, particularly verses 19 through 31. Abraham goes to Abraham's bosom. Uh, So this is not his body, but his spirit, the part that makes his soul, the soulish spiritual part of him. He's absent from the body, and in that dispensation, before the cross of Calvary, he goes to this, Abraham's bosom is called paradise in the Bible. Paradise is actually in hell, it's in the grave, okay? It's not in the hot part, it's actually a place called paradise, it's a place where the Old Testament believing saints are comforted, right? They are provided for until Christ leads captivity captive. When Christ dies at Calvary, his body is buried for three days in the grave. But man, in terms of who Christ is, uh, the spiritual soulish part of God the Son was hard at work. He was preaching to the spirits that were in captivity and then he was leading, the spirits in prison, but then he was leading captivity captive. And you'll read about that in Ephesians and also in Psalms 18. Uh, Christ busts out the believing Old Testament saints because their sin debt was washed away once and for all at the cross of Calvary. Abraham's bosom is what it's describing. So it's not his grave. That's a, that's a secular, atheistic way of viewing this passage. Genesis 15 says he went to his fathers, and that's exactly what happened. Okay, notice in verse nine that obviously Ishmael and Isaac are getting along. Uh, they, Ishmael comes to the funeral in verse nine, so there's some reconciliation with Isaac. As a matter of fact, we get down to Genesis 28, we're gonna find out that Esau, Isaac's son, takes a bride from, Esau, uh, from Ishmael's family. So obviously, the families are getting together. They know each other, they, they, have, they have visits back and forth. I, I gave you, a, you know, from time to time, I'll give you a timeline in your notes, and I give you that so that you can compare your, your timelines here, and, and, and basically I want you to see how close everyone is still together in terms of the events of the flood, and even the events of Genesis chapters one through three, okay? So based on the dates that the Bible gives, we know that Eber, the grandfather of Abraham, Eber's the guy that we get the name Hebrew from, he was 280 years old when Noah died, okay? So uh, Eber knows everything about the flood. He knows everything about the events leading up to the creation of of Adam and his placement in the garden. Now his grandson Abraham was born only two years later. That means Abraham was 150 years old when Shem died. Abraham and Shem knew each other well. When Abraham dies at 175, Eber, the grandson of Shem, is still alive. He's 460 years old. And Jacob and Esau are 15 years of age. Eber dies five years later when Esau and Jacob are 20 years old. So here's Eber, this guy who, I mean, absolutely lived life with Noah, who is chronologically very closely connected with, with, uh, with Adam himself, right? Remember we saw, we saw that, how close everybody was. So, you know, just generationally, it's a very short separation of time. So Shem and Eber, what that means, both Shem and Eber, Noah's son and Eber were able to fully instruct Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob about the facts of the flood and the way 
that God wanted a substitutionary sacrifice. They knew the Genesis 3 story. They knew what it took. Okay, verse 12, let's look at the family of Ishmael. We're moving right along. There's a lot of content to cover. Uh, we'll, we'll slow down a little bit when we get to the, to the life of, uh, particularly of, of, of Joseph, but there's a lot to cover here, so let's trust the Lord to do it. We got the pastor saying that I won't get done with Genesis until middle 2024, maybe 2025, and uh, so help us God by his grace, they're wrong. We're gonna get this done. We're gonna get this knocked out uh, next year for sure. Okay, so family of Ishmael. Now these are the generations, uh, generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's handmaid, bare unto Abraham. And then verses 13 and 14 list them. Now what I want you to see is what's special about them. Verse 16, these are the sons of Ishmael. These are their names by their towns and by their castles. By their towns and by their castles. 12 princes according to their nations. And these are the years of the life of Ishmael, 130 and seven years. And he gave up the ghost and died and was gathered unto his people. And they dwelt from Havilah unto Shur, his descendants, that is before Egypt, as thou goest toward Assyria. And he died in the presence of all his brethren. Okay, so, so notice the lifespans are shortening. He's 137 years old, dad was 175 years old. And they keep shortening, right? On this side of the flood, the, the ultimate set point is gonna be 70 years. God sets man's average lifespan at 70 years. Psalms 90 verse 10 says, the days of our years are threescore years and 10. And if by reason of strength they be fourscore years, yet is their strength, labor and sorrow, for it is soon cut off and we fly away. Life is short, it's a vapor. Um, you know, my dad, he's in his 80s now and I'll, you know, I'll ask him how old age is treating him, you know, how's he feeling, how's he doing? He goes, well, I'm old enough to die. And I'm like, well, welcome to the club. Actually, I'm old enough to die. I mean, you can be in high school and still be old enough to die. Life is short, right? It's a vapor. Uh, but if it goes according to plan, the plan is 70 years. If you did a good job taking care of yourself, you should make it to 80, right? That's by reasons of strength. You know, if you, if you eat right, exercise, maintenance, the machine God gave you to live your life in, well then you, you, you ought to make 80. That's the idea. Okay, so let's look at his family. He's got 12 sons and they become 12 princes. They're called princes because they become 12 nations, right? They are the princes of tribes in verse 16. And notice where they live. This area that's being described as you make your way to shore, this is what we would call today Arabia. So not only with Keturah, but also the descendants of Ishmael, these are principles of these Arabic nations, uh, the cousins of the nation of Israel. Now, let's look at Isaac's family, Genesis 25, verse 19. And these are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham begat Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah to wife. Nobody's in a hurry because they still have a pretty long lifespan. The daughter of Bethuel the Syrian of Padanaram, the sister to Laban the Syrian, and Isaac entreated the Lord for his wife because she was, dun, 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 here we go again, barren. And the Lord was entreated of him, and Rebekah his wife conceived, and the children struggled together within her, and she said, if it be, if it be so, why am I thus? 
you know, if I'm supposed to have these kids, what's going on? Feels like a war going on in my, room, in my womb. Why am I thus? And she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said unto her, two nations are in thy womb, and two manner of people shall be separated from thy bowels. The one people shall be stronger than the other people, and the elder shall serve the younger. Okay, there's a lot here in this section, isn't there? First of all, they can't have a baby. What is it about the patriarchs and they can't have babies? Well, remember the promise, the first prophecy is Genesis 3.15, and what's that? A skull crusher is coming for you, Satan, right? The skull crusher is coming, and so it's the seed of the woman. And so what does Satan do? Immediately, he goes after the seed of the woman. Cain kills Abel, and it just goes downhill from there. By Genesis chapter six, all flesh, right? The human genome, all flesh is corrupted before the Lord. What's Satan doing? He's corrupting the seed. That's, that's one of the great themes in your Bible. What does Satan do? He corrupts the seed. He corrupts the seed of the woman. He corrupts the seed of God's word. The very first time you hear Satan talking, it's talking trash on God's word. What's he do? He's corrupting the seed. Well, you know, God hits the reset on the human genome in Genesis chapter six, calls Abraham out in Genesis chapter seven, promises that he'll make of him a great and mighty nation, that it's through him that all the nations of the world will be blessed. Okay, that's the line now that the skull crusher is coming from, so Satan's messing and making sure they can't have babies. I don't know what he found to put in their water supply, but you know, that's, that's, just, that's just what's happening with the patriarchs. So what does Isaac do? Okay, in this passage, we get a great principle, of, of just spirit, a great spiritual insight. So get this down in your notes. Anytime you have a problem, don't waste time wallowing in discouragement. Don't waste time looking for a little help from Egypt. Don't look for a little Hagar. No, pray, pray first. So what's Isaac praying for? Well, he's praying for God's provision. He knows that the Lord gives children. Psalms 127 verse three says, "'Lo, children are an heritage of the Lord. "'The fruit of the womb is his reward.'" Ideally, children come whenever a man has a job, Genesis chapter two. He's got a way to provide for his family. He gets a help meet, and then you raise children in that structure. And that's what's happening here with Isaac. But man, anytime a baby comes, that's a miracle, amen? Uh, we don't go looking to make babies outside God's structure, but man, praise the Lord, because a child, according to, I mean, according to Psalms 127.3, the fruit of the womb is God's reward. Babies are miracles, man. And Isaac knows this, I want a little miracle in my life. So he's praying for God's provision. And he knows that God keeps his promise, right? God told Abraham in Genesis 17.19, Sarah thy wife shall bear thee a son indeed, and thou shalt call his name Isaac and I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his seed after him. Okay, God, you promised an everlasting covenant with not just me, Isaac, but with my seed. And it's year after year after year and we keep not having a baby. What's up with that? God, help my wife to bear according to the promise of your word. So he's calling on the Lord. He's praying for God's provision. Now for Rebecca, the baby comes, right? They have this baby, and so for Rebecca, she's praying for God's explanation. And the answer is, you're giving birth to two nations. I mean, it's bad enough to give birth to twins, but to two nations. Talk about a hard delivery. What do you do? Well, there's two nations in your womb. Oh, that's why it's thus with me. 
So what's, what's the picture there? Anytime you're confused about what's going on in your life, James chapter one, verses five through eight tell you that if you lack wisdom, just go ask God. He won't beat you down, he won't, he won't right, he won't, he won't despise you because you don't know what's going on. Just ask from on high and God will give you wisdom liberally. Ask God for wisdom. Now notice, okay, I want you to do a little math with me. Look at Genesis 25 and verse 40. How old is he when he takes Rebecca to wife? I'm sorry, verse 20. <laughs> Genesis 25, verse 20, how old is he? He's 40, okay. And then look down in, in, in verse 26. How old is Isaac when the answer to prayer comes? How long was Isaac praying for a baby? 20 years, you guys are so much smarter than the last class. I mean, I like to never got the last group to get, give me a 20, okay. So 20 years he's been praying, right? See, God's time to, he's not worried about it, okay? God knows he's gonna keep his promises. Isaac's a little freaked out. Year after year, they keep not having a baby. Year after year, he's going to the Lord. But notice he doesn't go shopping for a Hagar. He doesn't go scheming for a fleshly solution to what's really a spiritual problem. He waits on the Lord. Instead of doing what mom and dad did, Isaac gives the whole thing back to God in prayer for 20 years. He just waits on the Lord for 20 years until Rebecca gets pregnant with twins. So get this down in your notes. The purpose of prayer isn't to get our will done in heaven, but to get God's will done on earth. God, I don't understand what you're doing or how you're doing it, but I'm gonna wait for you on it, right? I'm gonna call on you for the promise of your word, but I'm gonna wait for you to do what only you can do over my life. No scheming, right, no conniving. I'm just gonna get full of faith and trust you for the reality of your word, what you promised you're gonna perform. Man, that is power in prayer. Now what Rebecca and Isaac both got in answer to their prayer, notice it was a word from the Lord. Verse 23, you know, I'm praying for a baby. The baby's calm, something's wrong, what's going on? Well, you're giving birth to two nations. They got a word from the Lord. And the answer was this, the elder is gonna serve the younger. The elder serves the younger. And so, Let's go ahead and toss this up on the screen. Look at Romans chapter nine. This passage describes this answer. Paul later writes about this in explaining this answer to prayer. Why does it feel like World War I is going on in my womb? Well, it's because you got two nations wrestling for dominance in your womb, and the younger will come out on top. The elder will serve the younger. Okay. So th this is an issue of God's election. This is how the Bible titles this. This is how the Bible heads this whole concept. God elects, God chooses, God decides Jacob over Esau. Not as individuals, but as nations. Here's what you need to know about Romans. No, 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 go back. We're in Romans nine. Let's, uh, let's keep that one up there. Oop, did we lose it? Okay. Romans 9 verses 10 through 11 is describing the election of God. Romans 9, 10, and 11 in the book of Romans are actually a parenthetical subsection. It's a, it's a passage, a parenthetical passage where God is telling you how he's dealing with Israel nationally. 
That's the context of Romans chapter nine. Now, in Romans nine, here's the explanation for this answer that Rebecca gets in prayer. Uh, God's selecting Jacob the younger over Esau the older. That goes against the way men think at this time. The, the younger always serves the elder because the elder has the birthright. They inherit the father's position in the home as head of the, as head of the family. Paul explains it this way, Romans 9 verse 10, and not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one, even by our father Isaac, for the children being not yet born, having done, uh, neither having done good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. It was said unto her, the elder shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. So Paul, in explaining this answer, compares scripture with scripture. Hey, remember that passage where God says, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated? What's happening here? What's happening here is God's dealing with them as nations. Two nations are in your womb. Don't miss that. That sets the context for these statements. Two nations are wrestling in your womb. Romans chapter nine is not about individual salvation. How do I know that? Well, because I have cross-references in my Bible and I know how to run them. I've got John 3.16 in my Bible. God so loved who? The world. That means he actually loved Esau, right? God so loved the world. That's everyone. That what? God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes on Jesus, right? Whosoever believeth on him should not perish but have everlasting life. Okay, are you, I'm a whosoever. Are you a whosoever? I'm somebody. Are you somebody? Right? Whoever believes on him. Okay, these are all-encompassing world words. God so loved the world, that's everyone. That whosoever, that, that, that's everyone. Everyone can make a decision about Jesus. Okay, so what about the election of God standing, not of works, but of him that calleth? Why is the elder serving the younger? Why is God loving Jacob and hating on Esau? Okay, this passage is not saying that Jacob himself is saved to eternal life and Esau is slated for hell for eternity. This passage is saying that Jacob was chosen by God to inherit Abraham's covenant. Esau was not chosen. Biblically, whenever you see these comparisons, love versus hate, in a, in a choosing context, okay, the, the Bible doesn't use the word love and hate the way we use the word love and hate. Since you got homework in in Luke 16, let me give you some homework in Luke 14. This is the command to anyone that wants to be a disciple of Christ. Except ye hate father and mother, you cannot be my disciple, right? That's Christ's commentary. Except ye hate father and mother, you cannot be my disciple. Was anybody in the cost of discipleship class this last Saturday, yesterday? Anybody in this room in the cost of discipleship? Larry and Anita, okay, you guys were teaching it, okay. Um, before the class was over, did you give everybody instructions? Okay, now that you've considered the cost of discipleship, your first assignment after this class is to call your mother and father on the way home and tell them, I hate you, I don't want anything to do with you because I'm gonna be a disciple of Christ. You gave them that assignment? Okay, you're fired. <laughs> we gotta get somebody in there that teaches this right. No, love and hate in the Bible is an issue of choosing. Okay, in Luke 14, except you hate father and mother, right? You, you, you gotta count the cost. You can't be my disciple until you come to the place where you say you hate mother and father. Otherwise, you can't be my disciple. Why does he say that? This happens all the time, man. 
I mean, person gets excited about the word of God, they get fired up about the Bible, they start actually living it out, they start talking about it, they start proclaiming it the way it tells them to, they actually start functioning as a learner of Christ, a disciple of Christ, because here's how it works. A disciple of Christ doesn't follow Christ when it's easy and happens to line up with what they want. We don't follow Christ according to what we feel or think or our, our, our changing circumstances don't determine whether or not we obey the word of God. We don't follow Christ according to our changing whims. We follow Christ according to what he said. The attitude of the disciple is, what does the book say? That settles it. That's what I have to do. Well, what happens is, you get serious about following the Lord, sometimes that can upset mom or dad. Uh, we've had cases like this where this happens. Somebody gets excited about the Bible, a kid in high school, it's like, all, all they want to do is Bible study and they want to learn of, of Christ. They want to learn the word of God. And, and we've had parents say, you're taking the Bible too seriously. Uh, you need to, your friends are partying. You need to party. We've had parents tell children, you need to sow your wild oats. Like unbelievable, you know. Have premarital sex. Use, you, you experiment with chemicals. Like are you kidding? I mean these are so-called Christian parents telling their kids not to get serious about the Bible, but to get serious about finding out what the world has for them. What's Christ's attitude? Except you hate father and mother. You can, in other words, mom and dad, are got, they've got a course for your life. Jesus says, I've got a course for your life. And you're gonna have to choose who you're gonna serve. Mom, I'm sorry, I'm not gonna do that. I gotta go to Bible study, right? I gotta learn, I gotta, I gotta show up for discipleship. I have to learn the word of God. Mom, no, I can't do that. I gotta serve the Lord Jesus Christ. And mom's position will be is, why do you hate me? In other words, because you're not doing what I'm telling you to do, you're hating me. No, mom, I love you, I just love Jesus more. See, biblically, what we're talking about is choosing one over the other, and that's what's taking place here. Why? Well, I'll tell you why. Because God saw Esau choose his belly, and he saw Jacob choose the birthright. God saw this, get this down in your notes. God's election, he chose Jacob over Esau before anybody did anything, that the election of God might stand. Well, how did that work? Election, God's election is based on his foreknowledge of your choosing. And the Bible, very specific, I mean, the key to the Bible are the words of the Bible. And the words of the Bible are understood by how they're used in scripture. Watch this, elect, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through, through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and the sprinkling of blood of Jesus Christ, grace be unto you and peace and be multiplied. Okay, how does election work? Election, according to scripture, works according to God's foreknowledge. So what happened was, is bef I mean, God's the alpha and the omega. He's the beginning and the end. And so before the foundation of creation, he saw you choose Jesus. He saw you acknowledge your sin before him and submit your life to him at the foot of Calvary. God saw you choose Jesus, and so before the foundation of the world, he chose you right back, and he, according to his foreknowledge, elected you to all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. You read about that in Ephesians chapter one. And the key in Ephesians chapter one is all that blessing that God chooses his children to are based on the fact that you are in him. God saw you, he foreknew you choosing Jesus, so he decided, he predestined, he made some decisions about you before creation itself was established. 
Why? Because election is based on his foreknowledge. All the blessing that God predestined you to was based on your decision to be in Christ. So don't throw out, don't read a passage like Romans chapter nine and say, oh, see, Esau went to hell. No, the Bible says that Esau was gathered, I'm sorry, um, Ishmael of, uh, of Hagar. Uh, Ishmael was, you know, he's the principal of the, the, the Arabic nations and, and Jacob ends up being the principal of the nation of Israel. So Ishmael must be in hell today. No, we just saw that Ishmael was gathered to his people, right? He went to Abraham's bosom. God blessed him, God loved Ishmael. Don't throw out the mountains of cross-references, Bible verses in your Bible about God's love for and desire for the salvation of every single one. All the peoples of the world over one difficult passage that's talking about Israel as a nation in Romans chapter nine. Don't, don't take a Calvinistic approach and then redefine the alls and the world and the whosoevers and, and you know, like don't do that for God so loved the world. Well, the elect world, right? That he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him, well, the elect that believe. Don't redefine, the Bible means what it says, it says what it means. Don't take that approach, it's wrong. I'll give you a list here in your notes showing this is another example where God reverses man's thinking, man's natural order. Um, the lesser comes out over the greater. Uh, Jacob was chosen over Esau. All right, verse 24. And when her days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb. And the first came out red all over like a hairy garment, and they called his name Esau. And after that came, out, came his brother out, and his hand took hold on Esau's heel, and his name was called Jacob. And Isaac was threescore years old when she bare them. And the boys grew, and Esau was a cunning hunter. Look at the description, because uh, Esau represents a kind of man, a type of person in your, in your Bible. Esau was a cunning hunter, a man of the field, and Jacob was a plain man dwelling in tents. There's a second type of person. And Isaac loved Esau because he did eat of his venison, venison but Rebekah loved Jacob. Okay, mom, dad pro tip in parenting, if you're showing favorites in your children, that's not gonna end well, right? I mean, it may be, you may naturally appreciate some aspect of one child over another, uh, but it's dangerous to show favoritism in an open manner. Here's, here's Isaac, um, you know, didn't think this thing through. Esau brings me deer jerky, and I love it. It's so good, you know. He brings me deer, he brings me venison chili, it's so wonderful. And so he just heaps praise on him. Jacob's a mama's boy. Uh, he's helping out around the house, you know, he's working in the tent, he's learning how to cook. I mean, just he and mom are having great times together. So Jacob is mom's favorite, Esau is dad's favorite. And that ends up building bitterness in the relationship of the boys. And it comes out, we'll see it. Jacob sawed pottage, verse 29, and Esau came from the field and he was faint. And Esau said to Jacob, feed me, I pray thee, with that same red pottage, for I am faint. Therefore was his name called Edom. Okay, this decision to despise his birthright because he was hungry in a moment makes him the father of the Edomites, okay? Now, just keep that in the back of your mind. And Jacob said, sell me this day thy birthright. And Esau said, behold, I am at the point to die. What profit shall this birthright do to me? 
And Jacob said, swear to me this day, and he sware unto him, and he sold his birthright unto Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and pottage of lentils, and he did eat and drink and rose up and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Okay, now this is, this is, this is where we get into it. Jacob and Esau will continue to develop along the path of their initial characteristics. Esau is a man of the flesh and he goes the way of the flesh. Jacob is a schemer and he keeps scheming until God transforms him, turns him into Israel, a prince with God. Okay, so don't miss this. Notice these types of men that were, were, were shown here in this passage. Esau is the red man, right? Esau, he comes out red, hairy, all over, right, red, all over like a hairy garment, okay? And then he sees red pottage and he says, this is gonna satisfy, this is gonna satisfy my flesh. Okay, so he's the red man, he's a slave to his physical appetite for this red bean soup. And he sells his birthright to get it. Now birthright's a big deal to God's people. Deuteronomy 21, 17 says that a father may not like, he may not like it because of who this firstborn was born to. You guys got multiple wives, here's the hated wife and she gives him his firstborn son. He shall acknowledge the son of the hated for the firstborn by giving him a double portion of all that he hath, for he is the beginning of his strength, the right of the firstborn is his. The problem is, is you know, this is a spiritual principle, the right of this firstborn in a kingdom of heaven, in a physical kingdom um, 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 aspect, the right of the firstborn is a big deal, but Esau doesn't care about it. So his life pictures the life of the unbeliever and it, and it keeps going. Okay, the Bible, the Bible describes Esau as a cunning hunter. Who else was a mighty hunter before the Lord? That was Nimrod, and Nimrod is a type or a picture of Antichrist, okay? So Esau's got a connection in terms of pictures, biblical pictures, of a typical Nimrod, a, a picture of Antichrist. You, we saw that in Genesis 10 and 11. And so this fact gives us insight into Esau's true nature. He's all about what the world can give him in terms of his appetites, his conquest. The word hunter, just put it in your Bible search engine or, or run it through a concordance. More often than not, the word hunter will have an evil connotation in terms of how it's used in scripture. Uh, did I give you those cross references in your notes? Hunter, negative connotation. Do you have that in your outline? Yes or no? Is anybody following along in the notes? Yeah, okay, all right. Okay, now, his logic is, okay, sell my birthright for this bowl of chili. His logic is, is I'm about to die, and if I'm dead, what good's my birthright to me? If I eat the bowl, if I trade it for a bowl of chili, at least I'll keep living. Okay, now, a lot of people will read that and say, Esau was crazy. However, now this is not in scripture. Um, this is extra biblical, this is an extra biblical account of what's happening here. The Bible refers to the book of Jasher multiple times, okay? So if you read the book of Jasher in chapter 27, the Bible tells, the, or, I'm sorry, the book of Jasher tells this story about this biblical time frame. So Esau's a mighty hunter, he's a cunning hunter. And um, you know, another, I mean in terms of the pro hunter tour, Nimrod 
has been taking the trophy home, okay? Nimrod is a mighty hunter before the Lord. Remember, he's a hunter of men, okay? That's how we saw him in Genesis 10. Uh, the story goes in the book of Jasher that Esau's out hunting and he sees Nimrod with his posse and uh, Nimrod's out hunting, you know, T-Rex or something, I don't know. He's out hunting and his men are, his, he's got a troop of mighty hunters with him and they end up getting separated in the hunt and it's just, uh, if I remember right, it was like Esau and a couple dudes or something, or I'm sorry, Nimrod and a couple dudes, a couple guard and uh, Esau kills him and steals the garments. Okay, so the way the story goes is that the garments that God made for Adam, uh, whoever wore those garments would function as the federal head of humanity. He'd be king over all the earth. Well, Jasher basically says that those garments that God made for Adam made it to the ark, went through the flood, and were passed down, and Nimrod had them. He was wearing the coat of skins that God made for Adam and was thus king over the earth. And so what Esau does was kill him and took his clothes, <laughs> took those garments. So he's got them and he's running from the rest of the posse, okay? And it was nip and tuck, it was, he was running for his life. And so by the time he loses them and gets home, he is all done in. He is at the point, like the book of Jasher describes him as being at the point of death. And so his logic was, I gotta trade my birthright for a bowl of beans. What good is my birthright if I die? In the back of his mind, he's saying, I got the skins. You can have the birthright. You're still gonna be kneeling at my feet because I'm gonna rule the world. Who's gonna rule the world? It's not girls. It's gonna be Esau. That's, it. That's what's going on in his mind. Does that make sense? So that, according to Jasher, was the logic that Esau was using to make this trade. Like, I have to live another day to actually rule the world. Okay, so I don't know if that's true or not. That's just what the bush, that's the story that the, the book of Jasher tells. All right, verse 27 says he's a man of the field. Okay, we keep describing this first type of guy. He's a man of the field. Well, in Matthew chapter 13, we've got a parable of the sower and the seed. And the seed is what in the picture, in the parable? The seed represents the word of God. And the field is what? The world. Oh, okay, so he's a man of the field in terms of biblical pictures. He's a man of the world. But Esau isn't in the world to win it for Christ. He's in it because he loves it. He loves being in the world. He's worldly. Philippians 3 verse 18 describes him as his, his belly being his God. He's a man of fleshly appetites. He was well favored and successful in the world, but spiritually he's a failure before the Lord. And that's your next blank. I mean, a, a, a quick bowl of veggie soup was more important to him than spiritual things. And that's a huge spiritual issue because the promises of God, the Abrahamic covenant, right, that Isaac had inherited, those were his. And, he, and he, he, he blew away, he gave up everything that God was doing in the life of their family over a moment of physical appetite. This pottage of lentils is like a pea, it's a bean soup. So he gives up the incalculable, the value, the uber valuable. He gives all that up for what? A bowl of chili, you can get a bowl of chili now for what? Three or four bucks? Inflation, let's, let's say it's four bucks, <laughs> right? He gives it all up for a $4 bowl of soup. That's crazy. But man, people keep doing that, don't they? How many people ruin their lives over a moment of fleshly appetite? They ruin, they, they completely reset the trajectory of their life. You say, I don't know what you're talking about. Oh, really? Okay, so 
This is stereotypical. I see it, I want it, I have to have it. I haven't earned it. It's not mine, so what do I do? I whip out my Visa card. And then you keep, in a moment of physical appetite, I see it, I want it, I have to have it, end up inheriting a pile of debt. And then now, you know, all of a sudden, you're, you kind of settle down, you mature, and you're in your 30s, and you're learning your Bible, and you realize that God wants to use you to make disciples of the nations. And it's very clear that, that the, the Spirit was calling you to cross-cultural ministry, but you can't do it because MasterCard and Visa, American Express, own you. So in these moments of, I mean, what is it? Discipline's out the window, self-control's out the window, the flesh is crying out for this thing and you have to have it and, and now you're not your own, you're not, you're not the master of your own destiny. You're not deciding how your life is gonna be lived out. Uh, the stereotypical example is, you know, you give your life to Christ, you wanna serve the Lord, you're growing in Christ and then you end up unaccountable in a relationship and in one moment, in a heat of passion, now a baby's on the way, children are miracles but this little miracle I mean, think about it, from 15 to 25, these are just incredible strength years, aren't they? I mean, your brain is like turbocharged. Uh, you're, you're learning, you, you, can, you can juggle a bunch. I mean, man, this is a season to make a bunch of disciples. Instead, you're trying to figure out how baby formula mix works and how to, how to change a diaper, and, and, and you weren't ready for that yet. But even worse than that, Okay, even, I mean, let me give you the ultimate example. Most of humanity is following in Esau's footsteps. Matthew seven thirteen tells us, I mean, this was Christ's warning. Enter ye in at the straight gate. For, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Most people are throwing away the spiritual treasure for the fleshly. He gives the warning again in Matthew 16, 26. For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? I don't know. Something that satisfies the flesh for a moment. Now the field represents the world. So here's Esau coming in from the field. The field isn't sustaining him very well, is it? He feels like he's at the point of death. Esau right, he is Edom, red, this is his nature, right, this describes his nature in the flesh. Uh, he's desiring the red pottage. Uh, this shows who he is after the old man. You remember Adam? Adam is what? Made from red clay. Remember when we looked at the word Adam and what that meant? He was the first man made from red clay. And so that pictures his old nature. But spiritually, nationally, he becomes Edom. And let me give you one last bit of homework. Read the book of Obadiah, and you find out that Edom is completely destroyed. They will cease to be. Hebrews describes it. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15, describes uh, who Esau is. Looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled, lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. For you know how that afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. So the Bible says that Esau was an immoral man. He was a fornicator. He was immoral. 
and he chose to satisfy the flesh, not to follow after what the spirit was doing in his family. He only cared about what his flesh wanted. He sold his birthright for a bowl of chili. The Bible calls him profane. Profane, we think of something as, you know, we think of profane and immediately we think of the word profanity. We think profane, profanity is just cussing like a sailor, which is true. Um, Man, if somebody just like busts out cussing like a sailor in the worship center here, in the worship, in the sanctuary, uh, we'd probably figure out a way to get them to stop that because we want to attend on God's word. Okay, profane, all it means is outside the temple. So for example, I will wager, in terms of the biblical use of the word profane, outside of the temple, okay, uh, everybody's gonna engage in some profane activity. Uh, What are we having for lunch? We don't know yet? Uh Uh-oh. Probably lasagna. Okay. Uh, after lunch, statistically, I'm eating lasagna. Or I'm sorry, after service, statistically, because if we don't know what we're eating, we're eating lasagna. Okay, um, what is that? That's me satisfying the flesh outside of what we're doing together as a local church. In other words, the profane, it's just outside of the spiritual life of God's people. And there's all kinds of things like that. You know, you, you gotta take care of business. So you drink your coffee and you go through your morning routine and, and what do you do? Well, you're, you know, you're dealing with the profane. Well, Esau is profane. His life is completely outside of the things and the purpose and the plan of God. This is a guy who loves only the natural, the fleshly, right? He's got no concern over the holy things of God. He's not a spiritually minded person. Now, compare him quickly with Jacob. He's the supplanter, he's the heel catcher. Now here's a second type of guy, he starts out scheming. He's playing, he's a man of the tents. Uh, But the picture is, before his life is over, what we're gonna see is an undefiled man that's a stranger and a pilgrim in this world. That's what we're gonna find out about Jacob before Genesis is over. He is someone who starts out a supplanter but ends up following in Abraham's footsteps, seeking a heavenly city. Jacob purchases Esau's birthright, and so here in this story, he's not deceitful. He's not lying, he, he's a very upfront about what he's doing, but he's, he, he's open, he's obvious, but he's unscrupulous. He sees his brother at a disadvantage, and so he takes advantage of him. He knew the value of Esau's birthright, and so he manipulates his brother to get it for himself. So think about it. Esau is this cunning hunter, but who is the cunningest hunter, right? Who is the craftier hunter? What's Jacob? He knew something of value. He went hunting for it and he got it. See, Esau had the birthright, but Jacob had the stew. And before it was all over, Jacob's got the birthright. Esau's got the stew, all the good that it does him. So now think about this. Okay, here's Esau living to satisfy his appetites. And ultimately, that leads him to the place where he despises spiritual things. He doesn't care about what God's doing in the life of his family. He just doesn't. All he cares about is making himself happy. Jacob, he's, a, he's actually a better hunter than Esau because he's craving something that's actually worth something. And so he goes after it. 
I mean, he's a, yeah, he's a supplanter, right? He grabbed his brother by the heel. Uh, but eventually, he grows to the place where he recognizes God's worth being right with, God's worth following. He starts out aggressive and tricky, but God ultimately takes this second kind of man and makes a man of God out of him. I mean, he becomes Israel, a man of faith, a man of God. So that's the picture, right? That's what we're seeing with Esau and Jacob, a fleshly man, right, versus a spiritual man, living after the old nature versus living after the new. And so this is the question on the floor as we close. Do you hunger for spiritual things? Like when you look at the field of the world, what are you hungry for? What is your life pursuing? Like right now, what is your life pursuing? What are you hungry for? What are you pursuing? What are you trying to obtain? What are you trying to get out of this world? Is it all fleshly pursuit, fleshly satisfaction? Or do you recognize what God's doing over the life of this church family? Do you recognize what God wants to do over your life individually? And are you hungry for that? I'd like us to bow our heads and I'd like us to close our eyes. We're gonna seek the Lord as we close. How many would say, Pastor, please would you pray for me? I'm not even sure that I know the Lord. We had six, six or seven people in the first service that raised their hand. They didn't know that they were saved, that they were born again. How many would say, Pastor, please would you pray for me? I don't know that I know Christ. I don't know that I'm saved. Would you pray for me? Can I see your hands? Is there anybody like that in this service? I don't know that Christ is my Lord and Savior. Please pray for me. Is there anyone? Is there anyone that would say, Pastor, please pray for me because I feel like Esau. I'm living the Esau life. I'm pursuing a life of satisfying the flesh. Pastor, please, would you pray for me? Can I see your hands? Yes, ma'am, yes. Anybody else, please pray for me. You know, at some point, you make the decision. I'm gonna hunger after spiritual things. I'm gonna pursue pursue spiritual things. God's will, God's word over my life. I'm gonna trust him for that. Maybe for some today, today needs to be a day of rededicating their life to Christ. And if you know that's you, I wanna pray for you. Is there anybody like that? Pastor, please pray for me. I need to be, I need to, I need to be someone that God can make a prince, a princess. <laughs> okay, I'm gonna pray. And then we're gonna worship as we close. Father, we come to you today in Jesus' name. And, and Lord, nobody raised their hand in this service to, to seek after, to look after salvation. Uh, but Lord, if there's someone here today that does not know you, God, break their heart over their sin. Help them to see the, the hope of salvation. But Lord, for my sisters that raised their hand and said that their life needs to be dedicated to the pursuit of the spiritual things that you have before them in your word. God, I pray that today would be a day of rededication, that today would be a day where where they count you worth being right with, worthy to follow, worth to take. Uh, You're worth taking your word serious. And so God, work in our hearts for your glory today, we pray in Jesus' name.